This morning we are kicking off our Christmas series that we've entitled Christmas Lights. And um, we're in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 1. Why don't you follow along as I read? It says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Can you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your son. And here in this Christmas season, as we give a little bit more attention maybe than we normally do or for sure the world normally does to the incredible gift that you gave to humanity when you sent Jesus. Lord, I pray that in our time today it might fill our hearts with a greater appreciation, a greater wonder, a greater understanding of what you did and why and how it affects not just us, but the entire world. So we give you this time, give you our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with just a little uh, survey with you guys. How many of you like Christmas lights, you know, the kind that you put on your homes? How many of you like those? How many of you do put Christmas lights on your homes? Okay, quite a few of you. That's good. Better than first service. You guys are uh, more spiritual, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you enjoy kind of what I would call the old school lights, you know, the one that had all the different colors, you know, kind of like this picture. How many of you like those ones, you know, the, all the different colors? And um, okay, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, we did that for a lot of years, and I think it was last year, or the year before, we moved to the icicle lights. How many of you do the icicle lights? Okay, I like the icicle lights. And then they have the icicles that blink. How many of you? Anybody do that? The icicle lights that blink? No. What about the the lights that project onto the house now, like these one? How many of you are doing that? Okay, you know, I actually tried to get my wife into that because I thought that's awesome awesome. All I got to do is set it in the yard and plug it in and I'm done, you know? And she was like, I, no way. She's like, it looks like Star Wars or something. And so, so uh, we didn't do that. My neighbor has it. And it's funny, this year his wife made him put up regular lights too. So, um, but you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas lights. I love how they look once they're up. I love that. I love pulling into our cul-de-sac and seeing the lights, you know, on the house. And it just fills my heart with a sense of warmth. You know, sometimes I'm thinking like, we should just leave these up all year long. I mean, I just think they're, they're, they're great in that way. And I, I love, you know, going to the different neighborhoods. When my kids were young and we lived in Oregon, there was this one particular neighborhood that, that they just went all out. Every single house for like five or six different streets. They just went all out and they would theme each street and we would go and, and people would come from hours to drive through this neighborhood and it was so much fun and I know there's places like that around here as well and I and, uh, just love that. I just love the, the, the scenes and especially the ones that really project and, and picture you know, the Lord. I just think that is awesome. So I love that aspect of the Christmas lights but I'll be honest with you, I hate putting them up. 
And I hate, no matter how careful I am, at the end of Christmas, in boxing them up and putting them, you know, just, just so in the box, no matter how careful I am in boxing them up, when the next year rolls around and I break them out, they're still tangled, you know? And that just drives me nuts. And we live in a two-story house, and uh, so I, I, I'm not... I kind of hate getting up on ladders and, and you know we always would get up on the above the garage and put lights on the the second story there we didn't do that this year because of my hip replacement so that was a good thing but but a couple couple years ago in fact Denise put the lights up this year because of my hip replacement but um, you know a couple years ago I was helping my neighbor whose husband was deployed put her Christmas lights up and so I'm up on a ladder and I actually fell off the ladder and I cracked a rib and uh, yeah, it really was painful. Um, So, you know, I I hate the ladders. I hate all of that. But probably the thing that I hate the most of all is how one little light can go out and it affects the whole strand, you know? That just drives me crazy. How many of you know what I'm talking about, you know? And I hate that. I hate when, when, when that happens. So I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas lights. Well, this morning, I want us to consider the strand of Christmas lights that God hung leading up to the very first Christmas. You see, God's Christmas lights come to us in the form of prophecies in the Old Testament. Or predictions about the coming of Christ. These predictions that led up to his birth and him being the gift to the world or the light that would come and shine in the darkness. And the Old Testament gives us 300 such prophecies concerning the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so those prophecies are, are, are like lights in a strand of Christmas lights because each one of them testifies to the glory and the greatness and the detail of God in putting all of this together. And every single one of them is needed to, and needed to be fulfilled in order for the strand to work. So we're going to consider today 300 prophecies. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to just do a few, or else we'd be here all day. But we're going to just look at a few that I think are really, really important. And I want us to begin by going back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, for those of you who don't know the story, I'll just tell you real quick, God makes two people, Adam and Eve. And he puts them in a garden, and they're in this garden. He says, hey, I want you to enjoy this garden that I've made for you. And you can eat of all the trees in the garden, and I want you to enjoy the fruit, and I want you just to enjoy all of this. But there's one tree that I want you to stay away from, and if you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. It's that tree right there and he called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil well then all of a sudden we see that satan enters into the garden fallen angel enters into the garden disguised as a serpent and he begins to have this conversation with eve and he basically seduces her and tricks her into eating the forbidden fruit and then she goes and gives it to her husband Adam and he eats of it willfully and at that moment it's what the bible refers to as the fall it's when all of a sudden sin entered into the world it entered into the human race it was in that moment that that 
sin, the, the human race was cursed. It was in that moment that we were infected. It was the fall. And because of that, God says to Adam, he says to Eve, and he says to the serpent, he pronounces a curse over each one of them. To Adam, he says, because you've done this, this is going to be part of the curse for you, is that you're going to work really, really hard. I mean, you're gonna, life is going to be about the sweat of your brow. And so all of you who work really, really hard, and at the end of the week, you're just exhausted on Friday, you can thank Adam for that. To Eve, he said, and, and you, part of the, the curse for you is you're going to have pain in childbirth. And so all of you ladies who have had hard labors in bringing forth babies and you experience the pain of child, childbirth, you can thank Eve for that. I mean, just think, childbirth might have been a fun thing if it hadn't been for the curse. But then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what God says to the serpent, to Satan. And I want you to notice verse 15. It'll be on the screen. He says, and I will put enmity, war, dissension between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. Note that in your mind, that phrase, her seed. It's important. And he, notice her seed is going to be a he. And he shall bruise your head. One translation I like better puts it. And he will crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is a very interesting prophecy. Our very first Christmas light. Because the woman doesn't carry seed. The man does. We know that. So here we have in the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the story, a prophecy, a prediction. The first Christmas light is a prophecy of the virgin birth. Now Isaiah, years later, would write um, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and this will be a sign to you, a virgin shall conceive. The sign was, a virgin's going to conceive. You see, a young girl getting pregnant, that's not a sign. That happens all the time. You go to any maternity ward in any hospital in the United States, and there'll, there'll be young girls there. There'll be young wives, women there, young wives who, who are about ready to have a baby. And, and they, they, that's not a sign. That's normal. That's what happens with, with two people after they get married. But, but the, the sign was a virgin. A woman who could be checked by a doctor and to see that she had never been with a man sexually is suddenly with child. And I want you to notice what God says about this miraculous birth and this child that is going to come. He says, and he shall crush your head, Satan. But in the process of that, you're going to bruise his heel. And so right here in the third chapter of the Bible, God lays out the Christmas story. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a child who would be bruised by Satan. That happens to Jesus at the cross. When he goes to the cross and, and there on the cross is paying the price for all of our sins. But in dying on that cross, in paying the price, Satan would be crushed. His power over man would be destroyed and the curse of sin that was upon man from the beginning of Genesis chapter three would be lifted. And that, my friends, is our first Christmas light. 
We move a little bit further into the book of Genesis and we see the second Christmas light appeared in the form of a prophecy to a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And there in Ur of the Chaldees, God comes and he calls them out. He says, I'm gonna take you to a land. And, And he makes this promise to him in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. He tells Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through your offspring. Now, what's interesting about this promise and prophecy is, uh, is Abraham, he's almost 100 years old, and his wife is pushing 80, and they don't have any kids yet. So this was going to be a radical miracle that God was going to give a child to this older couple. And through the years, God renews this promise to the people of Israel time and time again. And we could say that, that, that God impregnated his people with a promise. This promise of, of all the nations being blessed by them and through them. He impregnates them with this promise and told them to wait and to believe. And they waited 2,000 years. And as many parents here this morning will testify, it's tough to wait for a baby, isn't it? I mean, obviously every pregnancy is different, but the general pattern goes as follows. In that first trimester, when you first find out, man, you're excited, we're going to have a baby, wow, you start thinking about names, suddenly, you know, you feel drawn to the, the Gap baby store, I mean, you never did before, and suddenly you're thinking about cribs, and you're thinking about all of that in that, that very first, the beginning of that pregnancy, wow, this is going to be amazing, and then in the second trimester, it kind of begins to to hit you a little bit. Man, we're having a baby. Are we ready for this? Are we ready financially for this? Man, our lives are going to change. And then in the third trimester is spent listening to your wife grumble a bit and long for the day for that baby when that baby finally arrives. And any woman will tell you that 280 days is a long time to be with child. Amen, women? But ladies, be thankful that you're not a rhinoceros. You see, a rhinoceros is pregnant for 450 days, 15 months. And the average rhinoceros baby, when it's born, weighs 70 pounds. Imagine pushing that thing out, you know, 70 pounds. So be thankful that you're not a rhinoceros and be even more thankful that you're not an elephant. You see, elephants stay pregnant. A mama elephant is pregnant for 645 days, nearly two years And the average baby elephant weighs 200 pounds. Suddenly, nine months and an eight to 10 pound baby doesn't seem so bad, right? When you're you're talking about waiting that long. But imagine the nation of Israel. God impregnates them with a promise. And she's pregnant with this promise for 720,000 days. Nearly two years. There should be nearly 2,000 years. That's how long it took from the time that the promise was made to Abraham to the birth of the Messiah. Ladies, imagine being pregnant for 24,000 months. My point is, it's hard. It can be difficult to wait on a promise. 
Yet God told Israel that she would deliver a special child and she was to wait and to believe. And the Christmas light strand of prophecies is a reminder to us that God is a God who keeps his promises. But they come in his time and they come in his way. Well, this Christmas light strand that God was setting out through the Old Testament gets even more specific when Abraham finally does have that son. His name is Isaac, and Isaac ends up having two sons that we know in the Bible as being Jacob and Esau. Now, the question is, okay, there's two choices. Which one of his sons is the line of the Messiah going to come through? And God tells us, again, he prophesies long before the birth of Jesus in Numbers chapter 27 verse 17 he says it's gonna be Jacob it reads this way I see him but not now I behold him but not near a star will come out of Jacob a scepter or a ruler will rise out of Israel and so God gets even more specific it's gonna be through Isaac's son Jacob. Now the problem with that, Jacob himself ends up having 12 sons. We know them as the 12 tribes of Israel. So now the question is, okay, now there's 12 choices that God has. And which one of the 12 sons is going to be the one that carries the line that leads to this miracle baby, the one that's going to lift the curse and the one who's going to crush the enemy and the one that's going to bring hope into the world. And once again, God lays it out for us. The next Christmas light on the strand In Genesis 49, verse 10, he tells us it's going to be the tribe of Judah. It reads this way, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So over 800 years later, the Lord gives another Christmas light. And this time he gets even more specific that the Messiah, the one who would come and save man and break the curse and render a death blow to the serpent would come to the household of a man by the name of Jesse living in Bethlehem. Isaiah put it this way. When he prophesied, and then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse was a shepherd. That's what he did for a living. He lived in Bethlehem. He lived um, in that place, and he was the son of Boaz and a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth, which is a story in and of itself. But once again, we see now there's another problem because Jesse now has eight sons. And so which son is it going to be? Which one of his boys is God going to choose to be the one that carries the line of the Messiah? Is it going to be Abinadab, his firstborn? That's what Samuel thought. God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. And when Samuel the prophet saw Abinadab, he thought, man, Lord, this is a good choice. Because Abinadab was like Saul. He was tall. He was a strapping young man. He was a fighter. He was good looking. And and Samuel looks at him and thinks, "This, this guy's great. He'll make a great king. And God says, Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance. That's what man does. But I don't look that way. I look at the heart and Abinadab's heart isn't right, but there's another one here. One of Jesse's other sons, he's a man after my own heart. What's interesting about that is the one he was talking about was only 15 at the time. 
maybe even 13. They're not quite sure. He was young. And his name was David. And once again, God gets really, really specific. In the strand of Christmas lights, in these prophecies, he tells us, okay, it's going to start with Abraham. It's going to flow through the miracle baby Isaac. It's going to go to Jacob. And then I'm going to single out, out of Jacob's 12 sons, it's going to be from the son Judah and that tribe. And then from that tribe, 800 years pass. And then we get another new revelation that it's going to come from a city, a place called Bethlehem. And this child by the name of Jesse from the tribe of Judah, and then he tells us once again that here we're going to see it's Jesse's eighth son, the youngest. Eight is the number of new beginnings. He picks David. And in our original text, I had you turn to in Isaiah 9. Notice verse 6. He lays this out for us when he says, And for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. That this child that is going to come is going to come from the lineage, from the line of David. Now, not only was the family line of Jesus predicted, but so was the location of where he would be born. Micah the prophet, writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, wrote this. This was the prediction that he gives. In Micah 5 verse 2, he declares that out of the city of Bethlehem shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. Now what's interesting about this is Mary and Joseph, as you know, they're living in a place called Nazareth. And Nazareth is oh, about 90 miles or so from Bethlehem. And so they're there in Nazareth and they're betrothed to be married. But remember, Mary, she's been impregnated by God as God gives her, gets her pregnant with the Messiah. And all of a sudden, you know, God is like, okay, now the prophecy said Bethlehem. How do I get them from, Beth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, especially when Mary's nine months pregnant? Well, he moves on the heart of Caesar Augustus to call for a census. And Caesar all of a sudden thinks one day, you know, I'm a great ruler and I wonder how many people are in my kingdom. How many subjects do I have? I know what I'll do. I'll send everybody to the place of their birth and they'll have to register there and that way we can find out how many people are in the kingdom. And so because of that, Joseph has to, to go with Mary because Joseph was from Bethlehem and take her to the place of his birth. And so they travel nine months on the back of a donkey. Imagine that, uh, ladies, being nine months pregnant. I mean, that's quite a trip to the hospital, right? And I'm sure that Joseph was probably even in his heart murmuring as they walked along. This census makes no sense. It's enough that Augustus rules the world. Why does he have to brag about how many subjects that he has? 
And yet God was using something as spiritually trivial as Caesar's inflated ego to fulfill his divine initiative, to fulfill his eternal will. You see, Jesus was the final stanza to the song the prophets had been singing for centuries. The hope of the Old Testament saints was fulfilled in Jesus. And when Jesus was born, a long, cold night had ended, and the first rays of a new day had dawned. And a grim past gave way to a glorious present and an amazing future. In fact, this is what prompted the 6th century monk Dionysus to split the calendar into A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of the Lord, and B.C., before Christ. Because Dionysus, he recognized Christmas as the connection between past and present. And so God lays out this beautiful strand of Christmas lights in explaining who the Messiah, the line that he was going to come from, and the place that he was going to be born. And he lays out in the very first verse that we looked at there in Genesis chapter 3, that the reason why his son would come, that he was coming to crush the head of the serpent. He was coming to lift the curse that had been upon humanity. And he was coming to give us hope. And the Lord even gets specific about that as well as he prophesies, he predicts the very way that Jesus would die. It happens, David writing, about a thousand years before the the birth of Christ in Psalm 22, he writes this, for dogs have surrounded me and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones and they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now here's what's interesting about that statement. He says they pierce my hands and my feet. Who dies from having their hands and feet pierced? I mean have you ever you know watched a movie where you know, sword fights happening and the guy says I'm gonna pierce your hands and feet. You know they don't say that. He says I'm gonna cut off your head. I'm gonna run you through in the heart. That's the death blow. So what in the world is David talking about here? David is writing, catch this, don't miss this, in the 12th century BC. And he's describing the death that Jesus would die via crucifixion. And crucifixion, he's writing 12th century, crucifixion would not even be invented as a form of death by the Persians until the 6th century. So David describes a form of death 400 years before it was even invented and over 1,000 years before Jesus was even crucified. But you see, in crucifixion, that's exactly what they do. A person nailed to the cross has their hands and their feet pierced, nailed to that cross. You could try this on your own later today. I'm not saying crucify your husband, ladies. That's not what I'm suggesting. But, But the form, what it looks like. You see, in crucifixion, people don't die from bleeding. They don't die from the pain. What they die from is they suffocate. 
You see, on that cross, you're, you're hanging like this. Your feet are on a wooden platform, and, and you push yourself up like this to get a breath of air. But then your legs get tired, and you droop down. And then after a little while, you push yourself up again. And when you push yourself up, you're stretched out on that cross so that you can see all the bones in your ribs. And Jesus, or David writing there, says, they can see all my bones, exactly what it would look like when somebody was crucified. But what would happen here, the way that people would die, it was a very slow, painful death because you get to the point where your legs would get so sore from the nail and so tired that you just get to the point you couldn't push anymore. So you begin to droop down. This is what you can try on your own. And you droop down like this and you get to the point where it's really hard to breathe and people would suffocate. Now you remember when it came to Jesus, because it was the Sabbath, the religious leaders, they, they, they advocated to kind of speed up this process and have their legs broke. And so the soldiers go and they break the legs of, of the two criminals on both sides of the cross of Jesus so that they speed up you know, their death process. But when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. He'd already breathed his last. He already had cried out, it is finished, because Jesus was always in control. He was in control of everything. God was in control of this whole setup. I'm going to send one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to come from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through Jesse, and on to Jesus. And it's going to happen in Bethlehem. And there on the cross, Jesus breathes his last when he's ready. Now, he hung there six hours. Six hours on that cross, he hung there for us. But when it was time, he breathed this last, he gave up his spirit, and he cried out right before that, it is finished, it's done. The work is completed. He was pierced in his hands and his feet. His bones could be seen. And then David says, again, writing a thousand years before this took place, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we know. That's exactly what happened as they had put that nice robe on Jesus when they mocked him and then the guards were like, hey, that's too nice to tear up. How about we cast lots to see who can go home with it? And it's exactly what David prophesies about what would happen to Jesus. And Isaiah would also write in Isaiah 53 verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So let's tie this all together, and here's what we learn as this relates to Christmas. It tells us three things, three things that we'll focus on. Number one, Christmas connects the prophecies of the Old Testament with the realities of the New Testament. Every single one of these prophecies, every single one of these things that was laid out by, by the prophets as God had inspired them had their realities in the New Testament in Jesus as we see them being fulfilled in his life. Number two, Christmas connects mankind in his need for a savior. You see, from the first light in the strand, we see that there was a problem. Man had sinned. Man had rebelled. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, what happened was is sin entered into the human race. 
We were all cursed with, with this, this thing called sin. Sin means to miss the mark. It comes from the idea of the archers when they would shoot a bow at the bullseye. If they missed the bullseye, they called it a sin. Oh, you missed. You sinned, they said. It missed the mark. In the very beginning, God sets a standard and he says, hey, this is the mark. You can eat of all the trees, but except that one. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. And we know that they did. Later on, he expands the standard. He expands the mark with the the Ten Commandments that he gives to Moses in the book of Exodus. And I know sometimes we can look at the Ten Commandments and think, well, you know what? I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. Well, what about this? This is one of them. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever wanted something that belonged to somebody else? Have you ever thought, man, I wish that was my car, or I wish that was my wife, or I wish that was, you know, whatever it might be. Have you ever done that? What about lying? Have you ever lied? I think we all have lied. And what's interesting about lying is it's not something that we learn. It's something that innately happens to us. It just innately, we just pick it up. I'll give you a case in point. My daughter Amanda, 22 now, or 23, when she was two years old, Aaron and Amy are off at school, and she's home with my wife Denise one day, and they're in the kitchen. She gets into all the cupboards, and she pulls out all the pots and pans. She's got them all over the floor, and she's banging on them. My wife hears the noise, comes running into the kitchen. It's like, Amanda, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And my precious little two-year looks up at my wife, and she says, I didn't do it. Aaron did. Her brother that wasn't even there. And then she says, spank Aaron. <laughs> Now, did I sit Amanda down and say, okay, here's how you get out of a jam. You shift the blame, you know? You learn to do this. No, I didn't teach her how to do that. It came naturally. It came innately. Why? Because my precious little two-year-old is a sinner. And newsflash, your precious little ones that are over in children's ministry right now, they're sinners. They're sinners. They lie. They're selfish naturally. Why? Because they have that, that sin gene inside of them. They, they've been marked with the curse and they sin because they're sinners and it comes out naturally in the way that they live their life. And what that tells us is that our sin separated us because here's the thing. God said to Adam, if you eat of that tree, you're gonna die. But Adam didn't die right away. He lived a long, long time. But there was a death that took place. And the death was this. Adam's relationship with God died. At least the way that it was. Because before that, they had a closeness. They walked together. There was communion. But this is what sin does. It separates man from a holy God. It creates a wall. It creates a wedge. And that was the problem. But praise God that God, because he For so loved the world, as we're told in John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son. That he saw us in that place and he gave Jesus to come to the rescue, to pay the price, to go to the cross, that he could be our savior. And so Christmas connects mankind to his need of a savior. And number three, Christmas connects man to God. I want you to turn right now as we close to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. 
The scene in Luke chapter 2 is that of the shepherds on the day that Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. The shepherds are out in the fields watching over their flocks. And there in the field, an angel appears to them. And this is what he says, Luke chapter 2 verse 10. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Why? Because when you see an angel, most of the time people get really afraid because they've never seen one before and they're kind of radical. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ. That word Christ means Messiah. The Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one that that was prophesied in that very first Christmas light in Genesis chapter 3. He's finally here 2,000 years later. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Jesus came to bring peace. First of all, peace with God. You see, man, we were at war with God. We were enemies of God. We had rebelled. We were doing our own thing. And Jesus came to bridge the gap and knock down the the wall and make a way for man who had sinned to be brought back into relationship with God where there would be peace. And that's what happens when a person gives their life to Jesus. They experience being made at peace with God. But then there's also the experience that they, they have of having peace within It happens when you discover my sins have been forgiven and my guilt has been removed. Remember how that felt? The very first time that you discovered, the very first time that somebody said to you, hey, your sins, they're forgiven. Your sins, which were as red as scarlet through the blood of Jesus Christ, they've become as white as snow. You, when God looks at you now, he doesn't see you in the blackness of your sin. He now sees you in the righteousness of Christ. Remember how that felt the very first time that you discovered, man, my guilt, it's been lifted. How refreshing that was. That's what Jesus did. He came to bring peace with God, peace within. And listen, that can be yours today. If you don't know Jesus, man, just lift, open your heart up to him. Recognize that Christmas is a celebration of the gift of God. God, who, as I said before, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whoever believes in him, that's the criteria. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christmas is all about heaven breaking through and God intervening in the affairs of humanity. Christmas proves that God doesn't sit up in heaven with his arms folded expecting us to work it out on our own and find a way to earn his favor. He doesn't do that. He didn't do that. But no, Christmas tells us that God jumps into our muck and mire to make a connection with man. 
It was no accident that Jesus was born in a smelly, dirty stable. It was by divine design. Think about that. For, for Joseph and Mary, when they get to Bethlehem and they come to the inn and they're knocking on the door and they get told, hey, sorry, there's no room in the inn. They were surprised. They were disappointed. But God the Father knew that of all the places in, in the world that he was going to have his gift born, that it wasn't going to be in the best hospital in Jerusalem, but it was going to be in a stinky, dirty stable. And not to get you know, too gross. But I, I think sometimes, you know, we, we, we over-glamorize the stable. And all the animals look all clean. And there's no droppings. And we put a little drummer boy in there. And that's not the way that it was. There was cow poop in there, you know. There, there was sheep poop in there. I mean, it was stinky. It was dirty. And this is where God chooses. This is where I'm going to place my son. Why? Why does he do that? I think this is one of the reasons. Because Jesus is still waiting and willing to invade the stable of our hearts. The dirty, stinky, smelly, recesses of our hearts and cleanse them and bring life to them. That Jesus is still willing to invade, to come into the dirty, stinky, smelly marriages that we have. That Jesus is willing to invade the stable of our families, to shine his light into the darkness and bring life into a world where death had reigned, to bring hope where there wasn't any hope, to bring his glory where there had only been despair. And that happens as we just open our hearts to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gift. Lord, I thank you that your plan of salvation that was was thought out before the world was even made, before humanity even existed, had so much detail. So much distinction. Because you wanted us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is how sinful people get made whole. This is how broken people get put back together. This is how those living in despair without any hope Have your light shined upon them and in them so that it can then be shined through them as it was all going to start with Jesus, your son, who came into the world. The baby that was born was born to die, to pay the price for our sins, and then to rise again from the dead on the third day to give life eternal life, an abundant life to all, to anyone who would put 
their faith and trust in him. And for all of us here, Lord, who know that and who have embraced that and have put our faith in the work of Jesus, Lord, we say thank you today. But Lord, I pray for anybody here that hasn't yet done that, that today would be the day that they would receive your gift. For Lord, we know just like at Christmas, a gift can be given, but it has to be received in order to be enjoyed. If the gift is ignored or the gift is rejected, it does no good. And Lord, you have given us a gift in your son. You've given us life. You've given us salvation. You've, you've offered abundant life. You, you've offered a, a hope and a destiny that is rich and wonderful. And it comes through the person of Jesus. But it's not enough that you offer it. It has to be received. And God, I pray if there's anybody here today that hasn't received that gift, that they would do so right now. And if you're here today and you have never opened up your heart to Jesus Christ, you've known about him, but you've never really embraced him. You've never really received his gift of salvation. You've never experienced your guilt being removed. And you want to do that today? You want to receive God's Christmas gift to you? Life in his son? I want to encourage you in just a moment to do that by praying a prayer with me. Confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. But if you're here today and maybe you have, you did that at some point in time, but maybe it's been a long time since you've really even walked with God. You aren't living in that relationship with Him. You're just kind of doing your own thing, living your own life. Jesus wants to invade that dirty, stinky, smelly stable of your heart and cleanse it and change it and give you life and bring you back to him. And you too can do that right now by just saying and and opening your heart as we pray. If that's you in either of those places, just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Lord, I have rebelled against you I've done my own thing. I've lived my own life. But today, I surrender to you. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Come into my heart. Make it your home. And from this day forward, I want to live for you. Not for me. I want to experience today my sins forgiven, my guilt removed. Because Jesus bore the price, bore the cross, paid the price. So Lord, I give you my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen.